someone had told me a year ago that my favourite film of 2022 would be Top Gun Maverick, I would have pointed them to the nearest shrink. But, after three trips to the cinema, it holds up as one of the best movies I've seen in years, and a rare cinematic spectacle. I wasn't the biggest fan of the original. It's alright, but I guess I never had the childhood fixation with jets that some young boys go through. The characters also seemed like one-dimensional, jock, frat boys whose central relationship seemed to involve getting into pissing contests with each other. There's also the left-wing critique of Top Gun as a pro-war, pro-military recruitment commercial. This didn't resonate with me when I first saw the movie at 11 or 12, but over time I definitely came to prefer more gritty war dramas like Apocalypse Now and Platoon. Of course now, I see Top Gun for what it was, a coming-of-age soap opera set in a flight school, which is not intended to be taken as a treatise on the morality of war, but that still didn't leave me enthusiastic for a sequel. There was also the question of why a sequel was warranted, especially now, 36 years later. That, along with Tony Scott's death in 2012, was why I think it took so long for a sequel to be made. The original was quite self-contained, a coming-of-age story about a couple of frattish flyboys who learn about discipline, maturity, love and friendship as they train to become elite fighter pilots. Once the original ends, the characters move out of flight training and presumably begin their careers as military pilots. So where could a sequel take them? If they were to take these characters out of flight school and into a conventional wartime setting, the movie would likely have lost some of its poppy and fun-loving aesthetic. Likewise, there would be little reason to repeat the formula of the original with characters that the audience isn't invested in, and it's not like you could have Maverick return to flight school since he already passed. Maverick did joke at the end of the original that he would return as an instructor, but this was intended as just that, and not an invitation for a sequel. There was no way the gung-ho Maverick was intending to spend his days in the classroom, instructing students at a flight school. He was determined to be part of the action. And for a while, I think that's how producers Jerry Brockhammer and Don Simpson saw it, opting to continue producing standalone Top Gun-esque movies like the 1990 Tom Cruise vehicle Days of Thunder, which echoed all the same beats of Top Gun. In the decade post-Top Gun, Cruise could seemingly do no wrong, appearing in prestige dramas Rain Man and Born on the Fourth of July, smart legal thrillers like The Firm and A Few Good Men, and a romantic comedy in Jerry Maguire. He also found more franchise-friendly material, producing and starring in the successful cinematic reboot of the Mission Impossible television series, where he played a new character, perfect for his sensibilities, the stoic risk-taker Ethan Hunt, who was not altogether dissimilar to Maverick Mitchell. What reason did Cruz have to revisit the Maverick Mitchell character when he was the hottest property in Hollywood and seemingly everything he lent his hand to turned to gold?
But the cinema landscape changed in the new millennium, becoming less movie star driven and more about popular IP. Tom Cruise projects like Vanilla Sky and The Last Samurai all did well, but they weren't among the top highest grosses of their respective years, like in the 90s. The big money was in franchises like Lord of the Rings, Spider-Man, the Star Wars prequels, and Harry Potter. Looking back within this context, it's hard to see a movie like the original Top Gun being such a success today, or even being made for that matter. What's even more surprising in the context of today is that they chose a then 23-year-old Cruise to helm this picture. It speaks to a different time that a studio would choose a budding and inexperienced star to build a blockbuster around, which was not based on a popular IP, featured no well-known actors in its supporting cast, and was directed by a sophomore director. Yet that was also a time when it was possible for actors to become movie stars and to grab a movie by the shoulders and lift it into the stratosphere. As franchises became the new game in town, particularly with the birth of the Marvel Cinematic Universe from 2008, there was a concerted effort to resurrect popular IP. That's why we got another Indiana Jones movie in 2008, new Rambo movies in 2008 and 2019, Terminator Salvation, Terminator Genesis, Terminator Dark Fate, Men in Black 3 in 2012, then the series reboot Men in Black International seven years later, the Jurassic Park spin-offs from 2015 onwards, Independence Day Resurgence, two Ghostbusters reboots in the last six years, the Rocky spin-off Creed, Bad Boys for Life, Bill and Ted Face the Music, The Matrix Resurrections. If all of those could warrant another instalment, then why not Top Gun? The question then became, where to go with a sequel? Several decades had passed, and although Cruz still looked good for his age, a fair bit of water had gone under the bridge since he'd played the upstart cadet. There have been legacy sequels which featured the original characters in reduced roles, Jurassic World and Ghostbusters Afterlife come to mind, and indeed, an early script by Cruz's now regular collaborator, Christopher McQuarrie, had featured Maverick as only a minor character. But... Could you do Top Gun without Cruise? The idea of Harrison Ford passing the baton over to Shia LeBeau had been floated in the Indiana Jones movies, and they had even teased a similar thing with Mission Impossible between Tom Cruise and Jeremy Renner. But the hard truth was that audiences care far more about nostalgic pre-existing characters than new ones, and if audiences were going to rock up en masse for a Top Gun sequel, They were going to do so because of Tom Cruise. It helped that Cruise's star power began to somewhat wane. The age of social media also coincided with the decline of the movie star. Audiences now had unprecedented access to stars, and suddenly Cruise seemed fake with his guarded and staged-managed persona. 
In an age where actors are known to promote social causes, Cruz's Scientology attracted attention for all the wrong reasons, and this esoteric religion seemed nefarious and cult-like to the general public. What's more, when Cruz attempted to show a more human side, like with that infamous incident on Oprah's couch, it backfired horribly. I'm not saying that Cruz needed Top Gun Maverick. The guy would have enough money from his Mission Impossible outings alone to retire comfortably, not to mention his income as a producer. What I am saying was that he was gettable. The days of Cruz being the difference between whether an interesting script like Born on the Fourth of July or Jerry Maguire got made had faded. Not since his cameo in Tropic Thunder or his polarising musical turn in Rock of Ages had Cruz really stretched himself as a performer. His baby, Mission Impossible, was still going strong, but other franchises he had attached himself to were not as successful. Jack Reacher performed decently without setting the world on fire, while Cruz's attempted revival of the Mummy franchise flopped so hard that the other movies in Universal's planned Dark Universe were scrapped. These misfires meant that Cruz was no longer above the Top Gun franchise, yet he was still integral to its success. And if Cruz cared about his legacy, then Top Gun could be his ticket to being front and centre of the public consciousness again. Just like the original, Top Gun Maverick opens with Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone, and we are immediately taken back to this familiar world. Maverick is now a veteran pilot, but it appears little has changed. He's still the thrill-seeking insubordinate he's always been, and this behaviour has cost him countless opportunities for promotion. At 59, Cruz has barely aged a day, and during the movie's flashbacks, it's often difficult to distinguish between past and present Maverick. After pissing off his commander, Rear Admiral Chester the Hammer Kane, played by Ed Harris, Maverick is reassigned to Top Gun under Admiral Bo Cyclone Simpson, played by John Hamm, although Maverick won't be going on any missions. Instead, he'll be teaching the next generation of fighter pilots. This understandably frustrates Maverick, whose intuitive ability cannot be taught. He's not used to sitting on the sidelines, and, as his call sign suggests, he does not fit in well in a structured program. The issue is compounded by the arrival of Miles Teller as Bradley Rooster Bradshaw, the son of Maverick's late wingman, Goose. We learn of their complex backstory and Rooster's resentment towards Maverick for one, letting his father get killed, and two, knocking back Rooster's application to flight school, which we later learn was part of a promise Maverick made to Rooster's mum before she died so that Rooster would not suffer the same fate as his father. This is the main tension in the movie, as we wonder whether Rooster will learn to trust and forgive Maverick, and also whether Maverick will be able to give Rooster the freedom to be the elite pilot he is capable of being. In the movie's climax, the stakes are high, and we are transfixed about whether Maverick can protect Rooster from following the fate of Goose. 
Such a plotline is well chosen and allows the movie to follow the original while also covering new ground. Maverick is a devil-may-care pilot, but he must learn to trust in his pupils and give them the freedom to make mistakes like he did. Conversely, Rooster is prone to self-doubt and is regularly criticised by his rival, Hangman, played by Glenn Powell. Powell looks like a young Val Kilmer and fills a similar role to Iceman in the original, only here it is inverted. Where Maverick was the renegade and Ice was the conservative one, Rooster is the fearful one here, while, as Hangman says, if you think out there, you're dead. Val Kilmer returns in a reduced role as Ice, now an admiral. Kilmer has been battling throat cancer in real life, and that was added to the script to compensate for Kilmer's lack of speech. This makes Maverick and Ice's reunion on screen all the more cathartic, and we realise that we are probably watching Kilmer for the last time. One actor who is not back is Kelly McGillis, Maverick's love interest from the original. When asked why she was not called back, McGillis said, I'm old and I'm fat and I look age appropriate for what my age is, and that is not what the whole scene is about. Instead, Jennifer Connolly has been cast as an old flame of Maverick's, and she does well at endearing us to this new character. The enemy in Top Gun Maverick is never named, which may be interpreted as playing it safe, but Top Gun has never been a war movie. These are coming-of-age movies about flight school. The real on-screen antagonists are the narrow-minded and bureaucratic Kane and Simpson, who are too conformist to appreciate Maverick's individualistic brilliance. Maverick. 30-plus years of service. Combat medals. Citations. Only man to shoot down three enemy planes in the last 40 years. Distinguished. 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 Yet you can't get a promotion. You won't retire. And despite your best efforts, you refuse to die. You should be at least a two-star admiral by now, if not a senator. Yet here you are. Captain. Why is that? It's one of life's mysteries, sir. This isn't a joke. I asked you a question. I'm where I belong, sir. Well, the Navy doesn't see it that way. Not anymore. Watching it again, I was reminded of another recent masterpiece, Ford vs. Ferrari, and its enduring theme that you can't win a race with a committee. Throughout Top Gun Maverick, there is a theme of the old, i.e. renegade flyboys like Maverick, being outmoded. Career military men like Ed Harris's Kane and John Hamm's Cyclone envisage an automated world without pilots. These planes you've been testing, Captain. One day, sooner than later, they won't need pilots at all. Pilots that need to sleep, eat, take a piss. Pilots that disobey orders. All you did was buy some time for those men out there. The future is coming, and you're not in it. This is essential to the framing of the movie. Maverick is an outsider, someone left behind by history, like John Wayne's Ethan Edwards in The Searchers, 
or the recent Craig iteration of James Bond. In an era where blue-collar men are increasingly becoming victims of automation, Maverick is a hero for our times. It's also worth noting a meta-commentary in Top Gun Maverick about the state of cinema. In an era where quality acting and character take a backseat to CGI, Top Gun Maverick stands as an ode to traditional, star-driven moviemaking. It's worth noting that most of the stunts in Top Gun Maverick were genuine, and its box office has shown that there is a place for cinema in the age of streaming. Rear Admiral Kane's vision of an automated navy could easily be compared to a contemporary Hollywood executive wanting a movie industry without stars, because stars are expensive, difficult to control, and can be liabilities. But Cruz, arguably our last movie star, shows that there is still a place for him in Hollywood. Although he has been regularly mocked and thought to be past it, he has proven, as he did in the recent Mission Impossible entries, that he is still capable of commanding a huge pull at the box office and cannot be easily replaced by a younger star. The end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is headed for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. What Top Gun Maverick does well is provide due reverence to the original. When comparing its development to the Star Wars sequels, the two approaches are chalk and cheese. Where The Last Jedi tried to deconstruct and demythologize the Star Wars heroes, Top Gun Maverick treats them with appropriate respect. Maverick and Iceman are accomplished officers, and the bond that they formed in the original has not been undone. Maverick's antics have frequently gotten him in hot water, and Iceman, now an admiral, has been the one to get Maverick out of trouble. Maverick is certainly flawed. His rebellious attitude and devil-may-care behaviour has stopped him from achieving promotion, while the nature of his work and lifestyle has seemingly prevented him from settling down and starting a family. At the same time, the abiding theme is that we need pilots like Maverick who test the limits between what is possible and refuse to play politics. This is in stark contrast to the Star Wars sequels that portray the past as something that must die and the heroes as flawed individuals who should be dismissed. Sure, Top Gun Maverick repurposes a lot of the themes of the original and plays on a lot of nostalgic beats. It may be interpreted as safe, and it doesn't subvert expectations. But the movie also manages to elevate the material. Watching Top Gun Maverick for the third time in theatres, I was as captivated as I was the first time I saw it. The shots are spectacular and the score is pounding, being perfectly timed in both giving you an adrenaline rush and also emphasising moments of pathos. From the moment we see Maverick on his motorcycle hurtling into the sunset, I was reminded of all the possibilities of cinematic spectacle. Yes, I'm aware that the original was criticised for being jingoistic, and those critics would feel the same way about this one. But it was refreshing to see a return to self-confidence and American exceptionalism in Hollywood. Give me that over woke self-flagellation any day. And maybe American exceptionalism is a fairy tale, but so too is movie making. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. 
Too much love drops and then it's same. You broke my wheel, but what a thrill. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. I laughed at love cause I thought it was funny. But you came along and you proved me, honey. I changed my mind, the sun is fine. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Watching Top Gun Maverick. I couldn't help but feel that my experience was like what audiences got in 1976 when the optimistic Rocky counteracted more pessimistic movies from that time like The Godfather and Chinatown. There's a familiar narrative that the artistic renaissance of New Hollywood was destroyed by the blockbuster era ushered in by Jaws, Rocky and Star Wars. But right now, I think we need a return of the blockbuster to revive the spectacle of cinema. When was the last blockbuster like Rocky or Jaws or Star Wars? Besides, just what is there in our increasingly politically correct disposable streaming culture that's worth saving? It's one thing to complain about cinema being commercialised when you've grown up on a diet of Bonnie and Clyde, The Last Picture Show and Serpico, but what have we had in the last decade that would lead us to lament the return of the blockbuster era? Give me Top Gun Maverick over Moonlight or Roma or Nomadland any day because Top Gun Maverick is unselfconscious and understands the importance of spectacle within the cinematic medium. Why'd you take so long to tell me you need 